what is happening with our institutions of education, religion, entertainment, economics, all of the things in corporate businesses? What's the main thing that we are subscribing to, even if we have a disagreement? Seeing Earth as an unloving it instead of as being living and loving. Um, competition to feel superior as opposed to competition to develop positive potential. You know, more head than heart or more heart than head. These kinds of worldview precepts are out of balance in our institutions. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Nadia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. Quick note before we get started, if you haven't already listened to the first full episode of this podcast called What is the Metacrisis, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first. It's really a foundational episode that provides a lot of the grounding that is important for all the episodes that follow. My guest today is Four Arrows, also known as Wahinkape Topa, or Dr. Don Trent Jacobs. Four Arrows is internationally respected for his expertise in indigeneity and applications for living life in balance. He's a prolific author of many books and writings about the vital necessity of restoring our pre-colonial worldview. I first came across his work when I read the most recent book that he co-wrote with Dr. Darsha Narvez called Restoring the Kinship Worldview, 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Mother Earth. It is absolutely worth the read. It's a thought-provoking exploration into the ways in which we're living and what we can learn from indigenous and ancient cultures that have lived in harmony with all of life for centuries before colonization and industrialization became the norm. The book was selected as one of, quote, the most thought-provoking, inspiring, and practical science books of 2022, end quote, by UC Berkeley's Science Center for the Greater Good. In September of 2023, Four Arrows presented before the 9th Annual Sustainability Summit at the 76th General Assembly of the United Nations in New York. He is truly a unique human being. He's a former world-class equestrian, a horse whisperer, a world champion old-time piano player, holds two PhDs and lives next to and surfs on the Costa Alegre waves of Jalisco, Mexico. In this episode, Four Arrows takes me on a journey exploring the indigenous worldview, non-duality, and origin stories and myths. We talk about anthropocentrism, this idea that humans sit atop the pyramid of life and that everything else on Earth 
is inferior to and here for humans to use and then discard as they see fit. This human-centric worldview lies at the root of our entangled crises, and we explore some untraditional ways that worldviews and ultimately culture might shift. We ran out of time there at the end a bit, so I didn't get to ask for Eros who he'd like to platform, but I was able to follow up with him afterwards. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please subscribe to the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel or follow on your favorite podcast app. Hi, Four Arrows. Thank you so much for joining me on the Entangled World podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And thank you for the patience with all the multiple reschedulings that we had to do. Oh, we're in crazy times. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hope the audience will forgive um, my slightly nasally and any uh, and any coughing that's happening because I do have a little bit of a cold. But I'm really excited to talk with you today. Um, I came across your work first in reading the Restoring the Kinship Worldview book, which um, I know you co-wrote with Darsha Narvez, who I also recently had on the podcast. And I found such deep wisdom in in that book and so many things that just really resonated with my own heart and particularly the mixture of your perspective and Darsha's perspective was just really for me as a mother it just it just really spoke to me and so I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast to have a conversation with you and I typically like to begin all my conversations with my guests with just kind of hearing a little bit about your story and how you came to do the work that you do in the world. Oh, sure. My name is Four Arrows. I'm saying I reach out to your audience and offer a warm handshake and speak from my heart, as I always do. I'm a uh, Irish and was storified at Cherokee, meaning that my mother's five sisters and her um, uh, during a number of times through our life told us stories of an adopted uh, woman that was a relative uh, of ours that escaped from the Trail of Tears. But we have no evidence for that. But I am um, a maid relative of the Lakota, fulfilling my Sundance vows. I was made a relative and relative making ceremony for the Lakota is one of the seven sacred ceremonies. And uh, so I, I um, uh, started out uh, in Missouri and um, uh, went into the Marine Corps. And after the Marine Corps, I had a chip on my shoulder about uh, what the process. I was an officer and during the Vietnam era. And I took it out on whitewater kayaking. I took out my my, my frustrations on whitewater kayaking. And I tried to be the first to send the Rio Reek here in Mexico, which is in Copper Canyon, a canyon deeper than the Grand Canyon. And I had a near-death experience there. Um, and the Raramuri Indian people uh, saved my life in uh, many ways, um, had some visions, and uh, was very, very transformed by it. From that, I you know, had worked as a firefighter and a sports psychologist. That brought me into wanting to educate people about what I experienced with the Raramari. I went and got my doctorate with an emphasis on indigenous worldview. 
And so I graduated, became the director of education at Oglala Lakota College, where I did my my uh, my Sundance and vows and uh, made, made a relative. And since then, I've written a whole bunch of books and lots of articles uh, that have been uh, endorsed by some you know very very important scholars. And recently spoke to the United Nations. The book you just mentioned was selected by the Science Center for the Greater Good out of the University of California, Berkeley, as one of the most thought-provoking, inspiring, and practical science books of 22. So I, I emphasize the science aspect because worldview science is, one, is, a, is a relatively new idea. It came out of the 1700s out of the German philosophies, but it was mostly about um, stopping dialogue, if you will, because it was uh, debates between religions, debates between science and religions, the deba debates between philosophers, etc. But Robert Redfield uh, brought it back in, uh, from the University of Chicago and uh, into social anthropology as, as really being a vital foundation for how we act in the world and how we are in the world. And essentially said there's really two worldviews in all cultures, philosophies, religions, ideologies, forms of government tend to fall under one or the other. And one would be the pre-colonial worldview that all of our ancestors practiced for about 99% of human history, uh, like Darcia likes to say. Yeah. The other is our post-colonial worldview that has led us into the Anthropocene, uh, which is really defined as where everything is about humans and all of other life is a resource for humans. And that's not working so well. And so um, I'm here to help share that message about how with a non-binary worldview, seeking complementarity and a union of the opposites, which we'll talk about, we have to refine that balance again. Um, some people refer to it like um, Ian McGilchrist just wrote a 2,500-page book on left and right brain theory, yeah. uh, and saying that the you know that that the reason we're in this trouble is because our our left brains are in control, whereas the right brain should be in control. Now, there's something to that, and it's a great metaphor. Uh, I've had some of my doctoral students work on neuropsychology issues and, and MRI machines, and but uh, I was been very critical of his book for not mentioning that we have actually not lived this way always, and that uh, the and, not, and quoting the Western philosophers that are largely responsible for if we do have a change of brain waves or brain hemisphere hem emphasis, um, that it's the fault of the people he's quoting, and and he. And he also kind of misunderstood the twin hero story that he that he did use. So um, anyway, this is we're going to have a good good time ahead of us. Yeah, there's so much in what you just shared. Um, ah, let's see where to where to dive in. So you know, there's been there's been much discussed in recent years about the indigenous worldview. Um, in, in air quotes. And while I understand that indigenous cultures are not a single monolith, um, the wisdom and practices are entangled with the land 
from which people emerge and are in relationship with. Um, from my understanding, there are some common precepts that all indigenous cultures share, and and that's what you share in your book. And I'd love for you to kind of share a bit of how you might define an indigenous worldview and why it matters particularly at this time. Yeah, great. That's a great couple of questions. I do make a distinction between the very, very important place-based wisdom of indigenous cultures and in common worldview precepts. It's a real important distinction, and your, your question allows us to get that on, on the table. Because a lot of people say, oh, I, you know, I don't want to misappropriate uh, because I'm not indigenous. Mm -hmm. And this, this answers that question. If you want to learn more about that, um, you can have people go and just put in the indigenization controversy for whom, by whom. A peer-reviewed article I, w I wrote for the University of British Columbia's journal, and it's available online. It really talks about this in, in more detail. The place-based knowledge is something that we need to fight for. It's about sovereignty. It's about helping the indigenous cultures regain that sovereignty. Most cultures are losing it. I have about, oh, I don't know, 12 Navajo students in my doctoral program. And over the years, they've told me up to 70 or 80% of the entire Navajo nation has lost the way of the local indigenous cultural tradition, ceremonies, uh, prayers, and the language. And this has happened with my Lakota people. It's happening all over the world. And so trying to help bring that back is crucial because this place-based knowledge is knowledge that no one can have that doesn't speak the language fluently, hasn't been there for multi-generations, and knows the ceremonies. So that said, if we are in a particular place and we want to learn about that place, we should do our best to find somebody who has that wisdom. However, it's rare, more and more each day, it's getting lost, and we're in a lot of trouble. We're all in the same boat, and it's sinking. The worldview is, as you said, those in common precepts of this great diversity of individual indigenous cultures. And I've seen that, I've been and lived with it, and studied many, many cultures that have not embraced Western ideologies or religions. And uh, I'm, as, as vastly different as they are, the common themes are just striking. And so that's when I began to put together those common themes uh, that we'll talk about. And I've come up with 40 of these worldview precepts that I think are vital moral precepts that we have to put back into, into balance. The reason I think it's important is that they are a foundation. Uh, they are the, the foundation for our thinking and often uninvestigated. If we see cultures, religions, and philosophies falling under one of the other, uh, then we can realize that finding a balance again, and maybe to use the Gilchrist idea of, of the brain hemispheres, getting our, our brain hemispheres back in order, I think it's much easier to, than to try to do that 
it's much easier to actually look at the concepts of hierarchy uh, versus egalitarian institutions, uh, fear-based thoughts and behaviors dominating versus courage and fearless trust in the universe, uh, living with a strong social purpose or not, focusing mostly on self or, and personal gain versus community welfare, anthropocentric versus animistic. In other words, these are the things that even if we as individuals go, oh, well, no, wait a minute, I, I have a strong social purpose. What is happening with our institutions of education, religion, entertainment, economics, all of the things in corporate businesses? What's the main thing that we are subscribing to, even if we have a disagreement? Seeing Earth as an unloving, unloving it instead of as being living and loving, um, competition to feel superior as opposed to competition to develop positive potential. Um, you know, more head than heart or more heart than head. These kinds of worldview precepts are out of balance in our institutions, even in people who tend, when, I, when you read these, to say, I, I really believe uh, uh, more in a lot of contact with others um, than, than minimal contact, and I, I don't really like authoritarianism or aggression. You know, we've got to look at what's happening in the world that we are part of because the worldview is a hypnotic phenomenon. We begin to follow it almost as if and as if we are in, uh, in a trance. Tell me if this isn't right, but the way that I sort of understood the precepts that you highlight in the book is kind of like a a pendulum between polarities that it's not just like one or the other but they're sort of ways to move the pendulum kind of back and forth through through them at different times and so for example i know one of the things you know so one of the precepts i think is you know hierarchy versus non-hierarchy and you've um often talked about how during buffalo hunts, a hierarchy would emerge, and there was a purpose for that hierarchy in that specific situation. Um, so I'd love to just kind of understand if that's how you're sort of also holding it, and if you could just explore that a little bit more. Sure. In our, in our preface, uh, you know, my original preface is The Red Road, uh, which was on DEI. It was a critique of hiring critical, uh, you know, hiring uh, diversity and inclusion officers and doing it from the ground up, right? <clears throat> um, but that's where I first introduced the 40 worldview precepts. The, the preface really talks about the non-duality and the non-binary aspect of the dominant, of the indigenous worldview, the, the kinship worldview. Um, it doesn't really belong to indigenous people, by the way. Uh, I call it indigenous because those who still hold on to it, and they're becoming fewer and fewer, are still indigenous people. And all of our ancestors who lived in, in accordance with the, in, the indigeneity of where they were, that's place-based knowledge. So I subscribe to that, but I, I, and I use that term, but I really want to be clear that this does not belong to a group of people. It's not like, well, there's a Chinese worldview and an American Indian worldview. And, you know, we're really talking about 
how does the world work and saying that that the philosophies of Western science that have dissected the world to come up with amazing technologies probably doesn't have it as clearly for living and survival and happiness and health as those who lived in not concrete and glass, but amidst the relatives of trees and plants and animals. Getting to your question about this idea of, of non-duality and an effort to, have to see this as a pendulum continuum is, is vital. <clears throat> a lot of my liberal professor friends who realize the problem of rigid, you know, uh, rigid, rigid binaries like you know, George Bush is you're either with us or against us, right? <clears throat> um, they, on first thought, on first glance, they reject this worldview because they see it as a, as a dichotomy. Um, Hillary Webb has written a wonderful book, uh, Yanatan and Mazatan, on the, on the Andean non-duality, where she really talks about this. But if you look at the origin stories of indigenous traditional people, they're always having twin heroes as you know, a major part of it. And it can be two, uh, two girls, a girl and a, a boy, or two boys, but one is always opposite of the other in every way. And they are the primary origin mythology of indigenous peoples around the world. And, um, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell, who said, mythologies define who we are. There's, there's a lot of truth in that. And I'll give you an example of how this non-binary works and this complementarity works in these indigenous stories by using uh, one called Where the Two Come to the Father. It's a Navajo story. This solar twin, and the, by the way, the, the opposites are usually represented by the sun and the moon. The solar twin was the, the, the one that was named Monster Slayer. Uh, and the lunar twin was child born of the water. Now, they go to fight the monsters. Now, the monsters uh, in these origin stories were our fears, our jealousies, our egos, our greed, all the things that human beings have always had as a potential because we are malleable. And those things can always emerge and always have. And indigenous cultures realized that and lived according to species that don't have that potential. And that's just about everything else, you know, the trees and the, the, the plants and the, and, the, and the animals. So, and we'll get to that in, in terms of hierarchy and whether, because a lot of people believe in this concept of survival of the fittest and the hierarchy. The anthropocentrism defines what we are now referring to uh, as the era that, that we are in. It, and it's defined by seeing everything as about human beings and that everything else on earth is for human beings, right? I actually, well, we could talk about a book I wrote with uh, Dr. Walter Block uh, on differing worldviews and how we disagree on everything. And we, we, we came together in this book to be able to 
to you know to 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 work on this. These di these binary ideas of hierarchy versus egalitarian, of materialistic versus spiritual or self transcendent, uh, of strong uh, empathy versus more or less a lack of empathy, of words used to deceive versus words as sacred and truthful. If we if we look at how you know, say the use of words is deceptive, even though we believe and all teach our kids to be honest, we live in a worldview that is based on deception. And, you know, even little children, three years old, I didn't do that. You know, he did <laughs> that, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's part, we've been, this, the, the phenomenon of, of worldview has taken over, even if cognitively we can say, well, no, I, I believe in truth is sacred and truthfulness is essential. And then in the next moment, we ourselves somehow use deception. So looking at these, not as a rigid binary, but, and I'll go back to the, to the story with uh, Monster Slayer and Child Born of the Water. They come to the monster with the long arms. I can't remember which, which uh, what that was, greed or, 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 or what, apathy or vice, whatever vice it was, but. The, the monster with the long arms, monster slayer says, I got this, brother. I'm going to take my arrow out <laughs> and I'm going to shoot that guy right between the eyes, right? Well, child born of the water whispers, brother, I know you're a wonderful shot, but I think his arms are so long. He'll grab that arrow before it gets to us and he'll get us. So monster slayer, you know, he doesn't call him a chicken or a sissy or anything like that and go and go ahead and do it. He said, well, what do you think we should do? And child born of the water says, I think we should sing to him. Hmm. So monster slayer puts his arrow away, you know, maybe reluctantly, but he puts it away and says, okay, well, let's try. And they put their arms together and they sing to the monster. And of course the monster never having been treated that way, lets them pass, okay? Well, now jump forward up until now the beginning of the end of our indigenous worldview, which was around nine or 10,000 years ago when we somehow, and it was obviously indigenous peoples that started it, we began to move into a hierarchical way of being instead of the way that we really understand the world to be. I mean, even Darwin in his Descent of Man, when he talked about uh, his, his theories, he said, I, this is a theory on a very long-term development based on environment and change. The world itself is symbiotic. And of course, Peter Prokopkin wrote, the Russian, uh, wrote, at the same time, he wrote the book mutual aid to try to emphasize that part of Darwin saying that the world ultimately if you look at it whether it's lions eating you know deer or, or wolves eating whatever if you look at this world carefully it's very symbiotic it's very mutualistic and um and and, and that's what we've got to try to understand with this with the with the worldview when we see the opposite happening uh, which is, again, why I invited my, my co-author. And so um, about when, when we lost this worldview, guess what happened? The origin mythologies changed also. 
I remember Joseph Campbell. I went with Sam Keen, an amazing author and neighbor of mine, to listen to his friend jo Joseph Campbell talk in person a long, long time ago. And Joseph Campbell recited the mythology stories. I think it was might have been the, the, uh, the Shoshone. I can't remember the tribe. But he, he finished it, and then a tear came to his eyes, and he was choked up, and then he said, compare that to Genesis. In other words, he was emotional about an origin story being all about animals as teachers and people and the beauty of the relationships. And, and he was comparing that to one that was about sin and about, you know, animals being bad or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that really stuck with me, you know, and that was way be a long time before I, I really got into any of this, but I, I'll never forget that. And so what's happened now is our mythologies, which Joseph Campbell says, are fundamental unconscious foundations for our thinking. Mm -hmm. Romulus and Ramus, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Hercules and Iphicles. There's a whole list of twins, but now these twins, one of them kills it. The solar kills the lunar. Or... The solar steals from the lunar, or the lunar is not known. Like it, everybody knows Hercules, very few know, know his twin brother who is equally powerful, uh, Iphicles, right? Mm. Um, so we've become emphasizing, as McGilchrist would say in his book, we've emphasized our left brain hemispheres versus the right, you know, which is another way to say it. Mm -hmm. I think it's much more useful and I have some doctoral students that are actually doing this and, and, they're, and they're using this worldview chart daily. And one of them is doing a whole dissertation on how it's changed her life by working on these phrases that are moral precepts that we can understand and we can be, actually do something with. You know, it's hard to dig into our head and, and, and you know, change our, our hemispheric uh, <laughs> cells. So yes, your, your question about this being non-dualistic, abs absolutely. And we're all in the same boat. And we're all, because we've been raised over the last 9,000 years, we have been raised in the dominant worldview. So we are all uh, having a foot in the dominant worldview. And most indigenous people today also do. And many, as I've said, have, have, all, have all, all but lost the, the traditional ways. So we're all in the same boat. This is not... Uh, playing Indian or it's not, you know, t taking spiritual uh, wisdom away. I, I mean, you know, there is a, a need uh, for the sincere understanding that um, people are uh, uh, misrepresenting and taking, uh, taking indigenous things and playing Indian in ways that are hurtful. And so, you know, that has to be underst understood while we fight for their sovereignty. But mm -hmm. worldview belongs to everybody. It's how the world works and what's the closest possibility based on our understanding of peoples who for millions of years lived in relative peace. The research shows, in spite of its controversy, I've, I've written my book in the University of Texas Press published on learning the language of conquest where I identify many scholars from Oxford and, 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 and UCLA saying, that, oh, it's a good thing we've 
left our primitive past behind because of the cannibalism and you know and all and this and the destruction of nature and you know it's, it's poor scholarship but it was mm-hmm. it was there and it continues today and the hegemony of what we learn in, in schools and so if we really understand even the science and the western science the united nations largest study ever done on biodiversity may 2019 it came out you can read my article in the nation uh, what the media uh, the the media missed an important message <laughs> and that and, and this 500 countries 450 research scientists 15,000 peer reviewed papers seven times they refer to indigenous worldview and saying that where it's operational and where people are able to have it be the guiding way that this ex- the extinction rate is non-existent or severely reduced, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so we, we have something that's proven sustainable. And I really hope your readers will, will go to our website. We actually have a trademark for it now, but it's provensustainable.org, where we, we have, I think, about 22 contemporary indigenous cultures that have, have been able to prove and, and that their worldview is is doing just this on their territories, right? And mm-hmm. we're working to add a, a, a few more over the next uh, over the next year. But um, so that's what we're trying to do. And you're right in saying that we're all in the same boat. We all have a foot on one side or the other. On many of them, yes, there will be times where you will want to be less empathetic or more empathetic or more head than heart. Absolutely, right? And these times will be often. However, it's about balance and finding right. the balance. And we are so, so out of balance. Everyone's going to need to move to our original worldview more than they're going to have to move from it to the other direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and one of the things I've been thinking about with respect to this question of balance is also how out of balance we are in terms of masculine and feminine energies in the world. And I don't necessarily mean male versus female, because there are also women out there who tend to present more masculine energies as well. But I'm actually talking about the sort of balance between masculine and feminine energies and how it seems to me so many of what we might call feminine energies are more aligned with the heart and the right brain. And that shift that has taken place through a worldview of separation, of domination. Um, and so I, I guess my question is, how, how can this consciousness shift happen? How do we support an individual and collective transformation of consciousness and support a culture change in worldview. And and I want to be careful with sort of the way I'm asking that because um, history has shown that even the most well-intentioned people get into trouble when you are trying to do things like change consciousness and shift worldview. And, you know, we can talk about the eugenics movement. We can talk about lots of things. And so I'm just kind of curious as to how you're holding the ways in which we can allow a more indigenous worldview to sort of naturally emerge. 
Well, first, I, I want to kind of say that eugenics wasn't a worldview. And, we've, and it's really easy to have people think worldview because most academics, even still today, say, oh, no, there's thousands of worldviews. Everything's a worldview. Mm. And we've all kind of got that worldview is just a word that's used. Ah, well, that's your worldview, right? And Joe's got a worldview and Mary's got a worldview. And, and you know, that's how it goes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and but but you know whether you like vanilla or chocolate ice cream is not a not a yeah, worldview. Yeah, that's a great distinction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and and eugenics and 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 so many of the other philosophies they stem from a hierarchical worldview. They stem from a worldview. So what's yes. really really important is to, is to, is to really keep coming back to no no this is this is much more foundational and that's why it's not another one of those. Um, just to briefly touch on before we talk about consciousness change, um, the the matriarchal idea is so important that you talked about, um, and I don't and I don't want to just jump away from that into consciousness yeah. because because um, you know most of pre-contact indigenous cultures were matriarchal, the ones that weren't lent, tended to move more towards the kinds of patriarchal hierarchies that we have. But the great majority, um, uh, Levitt says, uh, one of the great researchers on this, about 78% of all pre-contact cultures were peaceful cultures. And they were all matriarchal. Even today, you know, in our, in our sacred Sundance, you know, the women don't have to pierce. The men pierce. Because women already know how to suffer, how to bleed, how to nurture. Us men, <laughs> we keep forgetting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and gender uh, differences that are natural phenomenon that happens in, in, in the world. Uh, indigenous peoples uh, totally never had this homophobic and this anti-gay mentality, right? This, this feminine energy uh, of Mother Earth, you know, some people's twin hero stories that I talked about, seeing the solar dominance over the lunar, many of us believe that the lunar was then re referred to as the feminine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And since we were increasing the power of the solar, that became the masculine and the feminine. And of course, throughout history, all the Abrahamic religions, all the traditions of Greek, Roman, Egypt, and today the glass ceiling, you know, Women, you know, suffrage is relatively new. This gets back to the solar lunar balance. But that didn't happen. Uh, just to give you a little story, you know, of, of sort of how it, it, it worked it, with women having maybe a little bit of a hierarchical edge, actually. So in the Lakota tradition, in the old days, the Anipi ceremony, which some people refer to as a, a sweat lodge, um, only men did theirs and only women did theirs. It wasn't mixed like, like we do today. Well, let's say the men had decided that they wanted to go to war and against the cavalry that had attacked their village and killed people. And uh, so the men would go into the lodge and they would purify. They would sing the songs of prayers for balance in the world. And then they would talk in between rounds about whether they should do this. Attacking of the fort, say. Meanwhile, uh, the women were in their lodge and they were doing similarly, except they were talking about, should we make 
the deer skin moccasins and weave them with porcupine quills. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, what was that about? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in, in those days, the men would not go into battle unless they had a new pair of deerskin moccasins woven with, mm -hmm. as before glass beads, woven with the chewed porcupine quills, right? So the man might come out of his lodge as a spokesman and uh, wait for the woman to come out, the woman spokesman to come out of the lodge on her side. And uh, he would stay silent. She would come up and say, well, what have you decided? And the, and the man would say, we have decided to attack the fort on the next new moon. And then she would say something like, well, we so respect your wisdom and your decision and your courage. But we've decided not to make the moccasins. <laughs> <laughs> and they wouldn't go to war, you know? So, I mean, and so people, you know, I mean, it, it, things are so different. But all of this comes from a fundamental understanding of, you know, sort of the idea of mother, of mother nature. Nature is the key and the core. And people who have spent time looking and seeing how the natural world works and then created their own culture because humans are a part of it. Mm -hmm. if, if we look into a dictionary today at the word N-A-T-U-R-E, nature, most of them will say everything but humans are what humans make. And it's this separation from nature that is the why we're in this Anthropocene uh, that is really about humans seeing everything as a resource. And this yeah. is the foundation of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So we go from matrilineal matriarchy, emphasis on, uh, on the importance of the feminine, right into the annihilation of patriarchic capitalism. You know, I mean, this gets heavy, right? But mm -hmm. what we're at right now is if we could reclaim in our technological world uh, with the advances that we might call it, true advances of convenience, if we could take those things and bring back this worldview, we would be letting go of a lot of things. And capitalism, as it is, crony capitalism, would, would, dis would disappear as well. Mm -hmm. So the consciousness, you know, how do we do this? And I'll just give you a short answer right now. Self-hypnosis. <laughs> The word hypnosis has to be used and not laughed at, not seen as something that's not, uh, you know. I taught hypnosis at UC Berkeley in the psychology program for MFCC licensure. They had to get 30 credits. Um, I, I was taught hypnosis by a wild horse. Uh, and mm -hmm. if you go on YouTube, put in the horse hypnotist, and you'll see me back when I had hair, and <laughs> you'll see how... I hypnotized the host of the program that wanted me to bring in a wild BLM horse, Bureau of Land Management Mustang, and, uh, and how I hypnotized him to go up to it, how I get on its back. Hypnosis is a natural phenomenon. Uh, back in, uh, oh, when was it? Um, I, 1991, uh, I wrote this book. It's called Patient Communication for First Responders and EMS personnel, the first hour of trauma. I was in Brisbane, Australia, speaking to 1,500 emergency room physicians, and one of them came up to me at lunch and said, we tried to order your book, and we can't. 
I called my publisher and they said it was remaindered. In those days, I didn't know what that meant, but it meant it was taken off the market and shelved. Some big mucky muck in, uh, in the business and that was involved with uh, Prentice Hall, who published it, said this in an article in the Journal of Emergency Medical Services, GEMS, the mm-hmm. premier emergency service journal, this should be used only by licensed physicians certified and trained in, in, in hypnosis by the American Academy of, of Hypnosis. Mm-hmm. And so the book was taken off the market. Now, just recently, last uh, month, one of my doctoral students about two years ago had come upon it and said, this has to happen. He's a paramedic in Houston. And he said, this is so true and it could save so many lives. I said, the book's yours. You can take it and try to get it published. So he found a publisher and a big one out of uh, Routledge out of London. And this just came out. And it's a revision of the original book. But this time it's called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. And it's endorsed by the, the top emergency physicians in, in top universities in, in, in the world. And I'm kind of glad I got to rewrite it because this, now we had computers. So I can, <laughs> I can actually give case studies of how you can have somebody stop their own bleeding and, and, and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so wow. this phenomenon of hypnosis, indigenous people didn't have the neuroscience of it and understand all that detail or care about it. They just knew what animals, animals and people could do, especially during times of emergencies. If you ever see a herd of wildebeest all turn at the same time, when a lion appears, what are they? They don't pass it on. You know, half of them would be eaten <laughs> if they had to pass it on. <laughs> Telepathically, hypnotically, instantly, bingo, they're 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 gone. Um, if you read my book Primal Awareness or go to the Shaman's Message Part One, Two, and Three on YouTube, you can see the story of how I learned this from the Raramari, from a 102-year-old shaman who spoke telepathically to me and was one of the last that, that had had that skill. So this hypnosis is what ceremony is. Mm. And indigenous peoples did two ceremonies, three ceremonies a day. So what is ceremony? What is hypnosis? We'll start with, because if ceremony and hypnosis are the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, a lay definition of hypnosis is simply Believing deeply in an image when you're in a lower than beta brainwave frequency. Mm-hmm. Trance logic is very different. Trance logic is, oh, yeah, you are. And the reason you're alive today is because you stayed out of bodies of water. Mm-hmm. That's trance logic. That's what we're doing to our world. It's not, you can't explain any other way that we're polluting our oceans putting animals in boxes, killing each other, perpetrating what's happening in Gaza. You cannot explain this without understanding this phenomenon of spontaneous hypnosis, natural hypnosis, mass hypnosis, whatever words you want to put to it. It's just unexplainable. And so now you got it. Trance logic. I can't go into a bathtub because I'll drown. Or I can't look at a black person because they're dangerous. Or you just go on and on with whatever the image or the belief system is. It's trance logic. Mm -hmm. And so ceremony 
what do you do? If, 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 if hypnosis is believing in an image when you're in a lower brainwave frequency, you go into a ceremony. It's dark. You have intention. Mm. It's a sacred feeling. You know, there's music, drumming, whatever. You know, or it could be, that I can name every kind of, of different ceremony and there's, it, it is using intentionally and willfully Hypnosis for a particular reason, to pray for the world, for, to, for healing, to, for, for giving thanks to the sun for coming up, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. We've always done this. Um, I wrote a book uh, with Greg Cahetti, one of the foremost indigenous scientists. Um, and Greg and I wanted to write a book called Neuropsychology and Indigenous Worldview. Because at the time, everybody was gaga over anything that related to neuroscience and education. In fact, there was a study that, that was done, I can't remember to cite it, but they had an article that was pretty much nonsense, but it had a picture of a brain with lights lit up in it. More people believed the article with the picture than if the picture wasn't there by, by a very significant percentage, right? Mm-hmm. So we thought, let's promote indigenous worldview precepts like courage and fearlessness and generosity and humility and truthfulness and, and fortitude. Just, you know, these, these are primary indigenous worldview precepts and virtues. And then let's show how neuroscience, I've got uh, at my university, I've got a bunch of doctoral students who would be happy to look up studies for us on neuroscience and neuropsychology. What do you think? And he said, let's do it. So we got Jong Min Lee, a neuroscientist out of South Korea, to join us. And the three of us got a contract for the book. But when the students started bringing the studies to us, there were people looking at the studies through a Western worldview and coming up with conclusions that challenged it, saying, for example, in a laboratory People are playing Monopoly. And someone, when they tap you on the shoulders, you give all your money or half your money or something like that or your properties to the person to your left. As if that's an act of actual generosity to begin with. But they're hooked up. And when Mm -hmm. they did that, when they gave their money away, a part of the brain lit up. Mm -hmm. That was the same part of the brain that in previous studies on selfishness lit up. So top scientists in the neuroscience field wrote articles saying there's no such thing as altruistic generosity. Mm. Generosity is always an act of getting something back, of selfishness. Well, animal studies disprove that. There's studies of animals that have saved baby animals of another species from drowning with absolutely no benefit to their species or themselves. In fact, they would be eating it probably in a few months. Indigenous people's altruistic generosity is, is, is recorded in many ways. So this happened with, also with honesty. One showed a study that said, and in fact wrote a popular book on it, Deception is a Natural Human Survival Mechanism. Hmm. I'm sorry. You go onto an island, and you, if I say to you, you go get the water and I'll go get the, the kangaroo or whatever for food, you know, I got to trust you. I mean, it's about honesty. Um, Otherwise, you won't survive. 
Neither yeah, of on you and will on. survive. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, in, in fact, uh, Thomas Cooper, a friend of mine, wrote a wonderful book called A Time Before Deception that I recommend. Um, and, and then he tells a, a story that I had heard, but, but he did a more scholarly version of it, that when, the, when my people, the Lakota, first had a treaty broken, the people got together after the man who had made the promises went back and broke the treaty and whatever happened. They did ceremonies of prayer and, and nipi ceremonies to heal the person, thinking mm. that they had a mental disorder in which they could not see or, or remember reality. I just think that that's such an yeah. amazing interest. And that they're that in pre-contact times, I've not been able to discover really any word that re refers to lying per se. There was about, you know, sneaking up on prey and things like that. There's different words that come close, but no, there's no words for it. So his book, A Time Before Deception, is, it really talks about we are in a post-truth world right now. Well, I think what you're pointing to is so critical and it just, it comes up in in the subtlest ways in conversations today, right? Like people saying things like, oh, you have to talk about X, Y, Z in ways that show what's in it for, what's in it for me. I'm thinking about what's in it for me. And it's become this ubiquitous, accepted way of thinking about what motivates humans. And it's so insidious and so destructive. And and it's not true. <laughs> the worldview that we have is constantly full of the hegemony, mm -hmm. right? The hegemony is all around us. I had a class last Saturday morning, and I asked everybody in the classes on rethinking schools and, and organizations. And I talked about we've got to consider the, the, the economic hegemony, the cultural hegemony, and the educational hegemony. And then what's hegemony, of course? I you know, gave him a brief definition. Well, it's when the ruling elite don't have to use force to get you to do what they want. Mm -hmm. They just get you to believe that what they're doing is the right thing, and, and then you do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I said, if all of you heard of the person Helen Keller, and everybody did, because it's, she has been very widely taught in mm -hmm. our schools, I said, why is how she was taught in your school a classic example of educational cultural hegemony? And I've asked this of doctors and lawyers and professors for years, and nobody knows. The truth about Helen Keller was she was a member of the International Workers of the World, the most radical labor union, because she fought against child labor that was happening where people would get blind and sweatshops. She filled Carnegie Hall up to speak out against the, the World War I, and, 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 which was like Iraq, the illegal war. She was a, a, a member of the Socialist Party and on J. Edgar Hoovey's hit list as one of the most dangerous women. She was a fighter for I've women's rights. I've never heard that. No, no, this is my point, yeah. right? That's why she's a hero to me, right? Um, but we were not taught that because we were taught instead what the right, wing, the, 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 the hegemonic uh, rulers wanted us to learn. And that is pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't need, yeah. you don't need welfare, you know? 
So she became the model for pick yourself up by your bootstrap. She was both deaf right. and blind, and she and she did. She was, oh my gosh, it, how much courage did it take her to fill Carnegie Hall up and speak against World War One, or, or to be a socialist, or to be, you know. That is but so the, fascinating. I had never is. thought of her story in that way. Yeah. So if we could think that this has happened to us daily, it's happening with what's happening mm -hmm. in Gaza right now. Yeah. We're looking at. So that's what you meant by trans logic. This is yes, what you're this is what trans logic is. You know, oh, that's not genocide because I have this particular opinion. So we we go on and on and on like this, right? You know, there's no such thing as climate change, or there is, but, um, and so. This is the consciousness changer, is to use in concert, looking at the two worldview precepts, which you can go and, and, and download for free, or you can actually get the big chart uh, that Jeremy Lint yeah. got and put on his fence at, at UC Berkeley. I didn't even know who he was. He's one, you know, he's, he's a <laughs> genius, right? Uh, yeah, but, I'll uh, include you get, in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, he, he sent me a picture of this. He, he blew it up on this big thing and put it on his fence in Berkeley. So we're using this worldview chart, and, and you can go again to um, uh, Kindred Media worldview chart and, and, and buy them for, I don't know, a couple of bucks or something. Mm -hmm. Or you can just download it or write me and I'll send you a free one. If you use this worldview chart with critical analysis, critical analysis, why do I believe what I believe is more of this instead of this? Why do I buy into this more than I do this? Where did that come from? And then use self-hypnosis to go back and try to remember where it came from if you want. Uh, but then use self-hypnosis to say, I'm going to move into this area. I had terminal cancer. I've been invited to speak at the Cancer Oncology co Conference, the biggest one in the world. Uh, I had stage four uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And hypnosis was a primary reason that I'm cancer-free today, right? So this is a powerful, powerful consciousness force, but without using it for, lots of people are using it to make more money. You yeah. know, there's a lot of yeah. the mindful, mindfulness program that's beautiful, you know, but it's, you know, it's all about things on the worldview chart that are out of balance, you know, self-centered, uh, more yeah. materialism, more this or that, right? We've got to use it for the for the right reasons. So, how how do we do that? You got to start at the with yourself. You got to start with yourself. Everything starts with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And and so we start with ourselves with beginning to use meditative and self hypnosis. Begin to recognize who we really are by the worldview chart, seeing that that we're one. Begin to looking at the answer, but doing it with this consciousness and with this, this this sense of relatedness and reciprocity. We start doing that. Then we got to take it with courage, which is a precept and requires hypnosis, both courage and fearlessness. Fearlessness is when we, once we take an action, we have a fearless trust in the universe. And, and start doing this in your place of employment. Start doing this with your friends. It'll mushroom. You know, I don't know if the hundredth monkey idea, which I'm sure you've heard of, you know, uh, is really factual that there was at, at one time when they all started washing the salt off of the coconuts on another island. I think the phenomenon is real. I don't know whether, whether the story is or not, but that could happen. That, that said, I, I, I'm going to close with something that will disappoint you and your readers. And, and you'll go maybe <laughs> from loving me to hating me in this moment. Because that's what happened when I 
presented this the first time up at University of British Columbia. Except I want to say that people have been writing me since then saying they they no longer hate me. This has helped them actually in their activism. I will never hate you and I don't think okay. my audience right. will either. <laughs> well, well, I'm going to tell you to let go of hope then. Hmm. Maybe all the reasons you were doing this show. Right? I think hope, if we define it as, oh, things are going to turn all right if I do this. The certainty of, of an outcome. I think we, I'm seeing so many people burn out because they just, they try and they work. They do all this activism. We're four tours of duty at Standing Rock and they, the oil pipeline went in anyway. I could have give, given up. But when somebody said, why are you doing this work then? I said, because I want to be a human being. And for me, hope isn't the certainty of an outcome. It's the certainty that what I'm doing is the right thing to do regardless of the outcome. Yes. And that, that yes. was Sitting Bull taught me that. And, and I, in my study and my book on Sitting Bull's words for a world in crisis, my little book, booklet on him. Um, it's like we are spirits inhabiting a body. And there's a long picture here. I mean, we don't understand reincarnation. Nobody knows the details that I know of. But the research shows that somehow all creatures have a spiritual soul, an essence that moves on and comes mm -hmm. back somehow. So if we just start to say, well, I'm not going to depend on that, but it sure makes sense to do the right thing. And if I have the fearlessness and the trust in the universe and the bigger picture, pretty soon I begin to live this way. And the more and more that we do this and the rebuilding, at this point in time, I'm not, I'm not saying we can turn it around. I don't think we can. I mean, I look around it and see what's happening. The powers that be, you know, Gaza, Gaza says it all. Hmm. I think that someone's going to have to rebuild. You know, the Hopi and the Maya thought we were given seven or nine worlds, depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. And then when nobody knows how long those worlds were, 18,000 years or a million years, whatever. But that our species is a part of this earth. When I first started this, I thought, I agree with people who said humans are a cancer to the planet. Oh, I'm so sorry for that. We are a part of Mother Earth. We are a part of it. And the, the evidence is there in, in the three million years we've lived here. We were part of it. We change it, but so does every other creature. But we train, change it for good reasons. The 15,000 years in the Amazon rain basin, we changed the heck out of it. But we, had, we made black earth. We made things better, not worse. And so we've got to get into this mindset of a, of a worldview that worked. And we've got to see the beauty all around. If I could play the flute, I got a broken wrist from a surfing accident. I would play my, my song that the Cherokee women sang to the children on the Trail of Tears. And it said, but did you see the animals in the clouds? Did you see the dancing grasses? And, the, and did you see the responsibility that they're keeping by feeding the animals? The beautiful trout in the creek we crossed, how beautiful and how they're keeping that water clean. And it showed the beauty and the responsibility of the animal. Carlos Nakai taught me that, 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 that song. I can't sing, I don't know Cherokee language, but I played it on the flute. Mm. See the beauty all around while you resist what is not beautiful, while mm -hmm. you 
you resist in any small way you can, even if it's only tending a garden and being aware of, of the wrongdoing in the world, because there's a vibrational frequency in just that awareness. We're not all going to be podcast hosts or, or authors or teachers or, or activists, but the, just having that consciousness of worldview and the truthfulness of how that worldview makes sense and doing what you can in your life the best you can. We're all in compromise. We're all in hypocrisy. We can't help it, you know, but um, we can minimize it until we want those who rebuild not to be like the post-apocalyptic movies where yeah. you got starting out with the same horrors. We want to see a po an apocalyptic movie where people come up and say, hey, I, I watched the entangled world before before the the bomb hit and i saw that that interview and you know what this is how we've got to rebuild mm, that's beautiful if you like the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the entangled world pod youtube channel if you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together. <laughs>